0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com.
1: Today's scripture is Acts 21, 17-26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then can be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of the Lord.
0: You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be here together this morning. We're grateful to be here uh, safely in this warm building. Uh, we don't want to take this for granted, even on a, on a day like today where uh, the snow has fallen and and Many people couldn't make it out uh, this morning, and yet we, we have the freedom to worship. Uh, we have the freedom to come together, to boldly declare the Word of God, to sing praises to your name, to enjoy fellowship. And so, uh, perhaps especially on a day uh, like today, we're, just, we're grateful for the freedoms we have to worship you. I do pray that uh, as we have gathered together, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be active as we continue our study through the book of Acts. That as we encounter the living and active Word of God, that our, uh, our very souls would be pierced with the truth of Scripture. <coughs> I don't know uh, what you have for us this morning. I know what the text says, and yet uh, there is so much that the Spirit does that we could never anticipate. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in an undeniable way during our service this morning. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, most of you recognize the name William Carey. Uh, William Carey was an English missionary to India, where he served from 1793 to 18. I want you to hear what one historian wrote about Carey. For his first two years in India, William Carey got no mail. During his first seven years, he got no converts. After 19 years of labor, a fire destroyed his precious translation work including his manuscripts of a polyglot dictionary, a Sikh and Telugu grammar, and 10 versions of the Bible. He then had an accident and was lame to the end of his life. He lost two wives in death. And he never went home for 41 years. So I read that, and I thought... What kept him going? What kept him going? Why would he continue to persevere through such great difficulty? Well, this is what he wrote. When I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die. Unless... Upheld by God. Well, I have God, and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on that sure word, would rise above all obstacles and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. God's cause will triumph. Brothers and sisters, couldn't we use Carrie's words as a means of perfectly summarizing the book of Acts so far? God's cause will triumph. I want you to keep that phrase in mind as we work through the text this morning. God's cause will triumph. Triumph. Let me offer you three observations about mission and ministry this morning, all taken from our text. Acts 21, 17. And we'll actually go through 36 uh, this morning, even though we I ask that we only read through 26. Here's the first observation: The conversion of sinners is wrought by the power of God. <laughs> The conversion of sinners is wrought by the power of God. We've known for quite some time now that Paul's destination is Jerusalem. And and finally, in our text this morning, he arrives. It's impossible for us to come to this point in the book of Acts without pausing to consider where this all started. I, I I want you to see the whole of this story related to us in acts to remember how god has sovereignly spread his gospel so go back to acts 1 and verse 8 acts 1 and verse 8 you're familiar with the verse but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After that time when the promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled, we have watched through Luke's inspired account as the gospel has spread. It began in Jerusalem in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Then it moved into Judea and Samaria in chapters 6 through 12. But it didn't stop there, did it? In fact, from the very beginning of chapter 13 through the end of this book, we will see the gospel continue to spread to Rome. The good news of Jesus is beginning to reach the ends of the earth. A glorious movement outward that is continuing even to this present day. And a pivotal part of this final movement is this visit to Jerusalem now. So Luke records Paul's arrival in Jerusalem where he and his team were warmly received by their brothers in Christ, most notably James, verse 17. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God. As Paul and James and other church leaders begin to catch up with each other, the topic of their conversation, at least as far as the text indicates, focuses on God's glorious work of drawing sinners to himself and making them new in Jesus Christ. And I love the the specificity. He related one by one the things that God had done. What an incredibly encouraging meeting this must have been. As Paul is gathered there with James and the other elders, and he says, well, make yourselves comfortable. I've got a lot to share with you. And then one by one, all the stories that we've studied so far, plus many more. Paul focuses on what God has been doing among the Gentiles, And then we'll see in a little bit how James affirms also what God has been doing among the Jews. Now, I want to point something out to you, something very important in the text. Many of you probably noticed this already, but look at verse 19 again. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul related what God had done through his ministry. Brothers and sisters, anything of any eternal value that is ever accomplished in anyone's life will be because God did it. Now, to be clear, God uses people, ordinary, everyday people filled with the Holy Spirit, gifted in various ways. God graciously uses people like you and me but apart from him we can do nothing in fact paul expounds on this very idea when he writes to the corinthians in 1 corinthians chapter 3 verses 5 through 7 what then is apollos what is paul servants through whom you believed as the lord assigned to each i planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul and Apollos, like all believers, were simply servants of the living God. Again, we are all called and gifted by God to serve in different ways, But not one of us, not one of us can transform a sinner. Not one of us can make another person holy. We can plant and we can water, but only God can give growth. Brothers and sisters, this reality should be profoundly encouraging. It should be encouraging To students here, as you try to share the gospel with your unbelieving friends, just be faithful to plant, just be faithful to water. Only God can change your friend. Don't become frustrated or discouraged. This should be encouraging to parents and grandparents as you continue to pray for your unbelieving family members. This should be encouraging to every person here who has any desire to see people truly change. God will use you. God will use you. He will use your ministry as part of His sovereign and miraculous work of radically transforming sinners by His gospel. Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And and what is the response to Paul's missionary report? Look at verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They glorified God. Now you might skip right over that and say, well, of course they glorified God. He just told them these amazing stories about what God had done, but let me draw your attention to one thing. They didn't glorify Paul. They didn't glorify Paul because it wasn't the work of Paul's hand. They were grateful for Paul, but they glorified God. Friends, as you go throughout your life and God leads you to different churches, you encounter various Christian ministries, if you ever see the reverse of what Luke records here in our text, if you see a church or a ministry that's growing, and the crowds are grateful to God, but they're giving glory to man, then here's my advice. Run the other way as fast as you can. Friends, the thousands upon thousands that have been saved so far in the book of Acts, the churches that have been planted, the godly men and women that have been identified, the miraculous healings we've encountered, all of it, every bit of it, God has done. You know, the same is true here at Redeemer. No good thing that has ever happened in this church or in any person's life has ever been the result of the charisma or gifting of any man or woman. Now this church is a testimony to the grace and goodness of God. And so we will and we must glorify God. Now we want to be deeply grateful for how he uses brothers and sisters. But they are not the object of our worship. We do not glory in them. We glory in God alone. The conversion of sinners and all spiritual good is wrought by the power of God. Now, Here's a second observation. The clarity of the gospel requires the wisdom of God. The conversion of sinners is wrought by the power of God. The clarity of the gospel requires the wisdom of God. After Paul reported on his missionary work, and together they praised God for his goodness, midway through verse 20, James and the Jerusalem elders respond. Look at the text. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? As the church has grown and a diverse people has been gathered together by the power of God through the proclamation of his gospel, a problem has surfaced. Though it's not an entirely new problem. We've, we've seen this already. In fact, it will sound familiar to you if you've been with us through our study of Acts. As Paul has been traveling and primarily reaching Gentiles for Christ, many Jews have also come to faith in the Lord Jesus. As we've seen so many times before, unbelieving Jews are, are misrepresenting the teaching of Paul to these, to these newly converted Jews. Remember, Paul is trying to walk this tightrope between Jews and Gentiles and, and what role does the law play? And We've, we've seen this before and, and now opponents of Paul, they're seizing on an opportunity and they're misrepresenting what he said. They're falsely presenting what he's doing. F.F. Bruce points out that there has been no indication in Acts so far that Paul was explicitly encouraging Jewish converts to abandon their law or their customs. He treats these matters as neither necessary for salvation nor binding on the conscience. Friends, as Jews were coming to faith in Christ, they were not immediately abandoning all their Jewish practices. There would need to be a process of spiritual growth. And as they matured, uh, they would understand more fully their identity and freedom in Christ. This tension is what the Jerusalem Council wrestled with back in chapter 15. And it's what we find here again. Weird, isn't it? That they addressed a problem one time in the church and it didn't go away. It's similar to what Paul addresses in Romans 14 where he uses the terminology of weaker and stronger Christians. These kinds of challenges have always been part of the church. They always will be. Here's the simple reality of what was happening. The gospel was making too much progress and so unbelieving Jews distorted Paul's actual teaching in order to stir up opposition against him, hoping ultimately, of course, to impede the progress of the gospel. That's what's happening. The church is growing. It's, it, it, it's experiencing growing pains. There are difficult circumstances that they have to try to navigate. Paul is doing the best he can. James and the Jerusalem elders have helped in this process. They've made... They've made certain decisions back at the council that gathered in chapter 15. But now they're opponents of the gospel. And they don't like what's happening. And so they're looking for an opportunity. And this is an opportunity. But I think it's so instructive for us to see how these early church leaders are committed to wrestling through difficult circumstances in the church. Ultimately, making sure that the gospel is as clear as possible. So look at verse 22 again. James asks, What then is to be done? They, those who stand in opposition, will certainly hear that you have come. Uh, Well, Do therefore what we tell you. So here's their idea. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among them. Uh, along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you and that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Okay, this is, this is a Jerusalem council and. Acts 15, verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So the elders in Jerusalem proposed an idea aimed at counteracting the falsehood that's being spread about Paul. And here's what they suggest. There are four men who have taken a Nazarite vow, and Paul is encouraged to join with them as they complete their vow. Now, what's the point of all this? Why couldn't Paul, or why shouldn't he just hunker down, do ministry the the way he knew was right, and let the chips fall wherever they will? Well, I want you to listen to how John Stott explains this interaction between James and Paul. Paul. I think he gets to the heart of what's motivating both men. I think this is instructive for us. This is what Stott writes. We can only thank God for the generosity of spirit displayed by both James and Paul. They were already agreed doctrinally that salvation was by grace in Christ through faith and ethically that Christians must obey the moral law the issue between them concerned culture, ceremony, and tradition. The solution to which they came was not a compromise in the sense of sacrificing a doctrinal or moral principle, but a concession in the area of practice. Now this is a, this is a good reminder for us that not everything in the church always fits into neat and tidy categories. But sometimes we have to wrestle through difficult issues that are confusing to everybody, and we we need the wisdom of God to do this, and we cry out to Him in desperation. We let Scripture be our guide. We say there are certain things we will not compromise But beyond that, we just need to figure out a way forward. Brothers and sisters, as the gospel is spreading the new areas and new people, something extraordinary is happening. Jews and Gentiles are being brought together by sovereign grace. And if we get and and think about this if if someone were to get so fixated on the details of the decision that Paul and James are wrestling through. They would miss what's actually happening. The reason for which they have this difficulty. God's saving diverse people. He's joining them together into a new family in Jesus Christ. This never happens without difficulty or confusion. Confusion. And yet here is another account of godly church leaders submitting themselves to God, relying not on their own ingenuity and ability, but they are totally dependent upon divine wisdom. What a challenge this would have been to maintain gospel clarity while navigating increasing diversity. Friends, the challenge of cultivating unity in the midst of diversity will always bring the temptation to compromise some aspect of the gospel. But if the gospel is compromised, then the source of the unity is lost. As I was considering the challenge of the early church, the challenge of diversity, I was reminded that this is This is God's plan for his bride. It's supposed to be this way. God's sovereign plan for the church is not to gather people who all look the same, talk the same, think the same. Now listen to what Mark Dever writes. So gather a group of men and women, young and old, Black and white, Asian and African, rich and poor, uneducated and educated, with all their diverse talents and gifts and offerings. Just make sure all of them know they're sick, sinful, and saved by grace alone. What do you have? Well, you have the makings of a church. The church always has and always will face challenges. Sometimes they will resemble what we see in our text. Other times they'll be very different. But if we ever think we can do this on our own, that we possess everything we need to navigate all the various challenges of a a growing church, oh, brothers and sisters, if we begin to think this way, may God deal severely with us, reminding us that we are desperate for him We need divine wisdom at every turn and for everything. This is why we should be a people committed to prayer and a people committed to having difficult and necessary conversations. We don't want to take the easy way out. We want to glorify God by pursuing unity in the midst. Of diversity. The conversion of sinners is wrought by the power of God. The clarity of the gospel requires the wisdom of God. And now finally a third observation. The confidence of Christians rests in the providence of God. The confidence of Christians rests in the providence. Of God. Even though Paul walked in wisdom and followed James' advice, it didn't placate those who opposed him. So look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, which was not true. Verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut as they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. When the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he required who he was. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, He was actually carried by the soldiers because the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed crying out away with him. Friends, I want you to pause for a second before I explain this last point and think about the parallels between what's happening here and what happened with Jesus. There's a whole sermon here on Paul. You could just Call it following in the footsteps of Jesus. Wrongly accused, beaten. The crowd is screaming. In fact, you you can even hear the crucifixion story in that last cry. Away with him. This This is a good reminder for us That to love Jesus and to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Is to follow in his way. It is a way of of suffering. Yet that suffering gives way to glory. By following the advice of James and the Ephesian elders, Paul put himself in a very visible and dangerous situation. Those who opposed him, seized him, dragged him out of the temple and planned uh, to beat him to death. The text tells us that the mob was stopped by a Roman military commander who arrested Paul, put him in chains. Because the crowd was in such a frenzy, Paul had to be taken away. So apart from what I've mentioned already, what strikes me about this account is the undeniable presence of divine providence. Though the scene Luke paints seems absolutely out of control, we see God's hand at work, don't we? God is working in and through every detail of this chaotic scene to accomplish his good purpose. And we've seen this all throughout the book of Acts. As these mobs raise up against God's servants in the early church, it's not because God didn't anticipate this and is helpless. No, he is sovereign over all of it. And we see as the story unfolds, we see the hand of providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us that God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of God's providence in the midst of a chaotic world where things in our families and marriages and relationships and jobs may seem like they're spinning out of control, we need to be reminded of the providence of God. In fact, listen to the words of J.I. Packer. And you've got to think that this is something of what Paul must have been thinking while he was being dragged out of the temple screamed at, and beaten. Packer writes, the doctrine of divine providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces. Fortune, chance, luck, fate, No, all that happens to them is divinely planned and each event comes as a new summons. Listen, each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey and rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. Romans eight twenty eight. this is what sustains believers and gives them hope even in the most difficult and discouraging of times. Whether it's the seemingly fruitless labors and deep personal suffering of William Carey or the physical pain and anguish of the Apostle Paul or whatever you're facing right now that causes you to ask why Or how long? Or. What's God doing in this? Whatever you're facing. In Christ. You can rest. In the providence of God. Remember again. The words of William Carey during his darkest hour, he simply said, Well, I have God, and his word is true. God's cause will triumph. So I don't know what he's up to. I don't know how long this will last. I I don't know what the end will be. But I have God. And his word is true. And whatever he's doing, it's for his good purpose. And his cause will triumph. And because I'm in Christ, I will persevere and experience the great glory of that ultimate triumph. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what else would give someone the strength and hope to persevere in difficulty. And the glorious reality of God's providence. Let's pray.